Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. Today I'm joined with Dr. Andrew Walker-White for a conversation about early Greek theater. Dr. White is a professor at George Mason University based in the U.S. He specializes in ancient and medieval Greek performance, and he's author of the book, Performing Orthodox Ritual in Byzantium, which was published by Cambridge University Press. And he joins us today from Pennsylvania in the U.S. Welcome to the call, Andy. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the invitation. So to create sufficient background and context for this conversation, Andy, when theater, the word theater is being referenced, and we're talking about early Greek theater, how do you define inside the context of this conversation what theater is? Well, um, theater, as we know it, is something that develops and crystallizes uh, during what's known as Athens' Golden Age, um, the uh, the 5th century BC, uh, or uh, BCE, as you wish. Um, It begins in competitions. Uh, The interesting thing is that um, theater, as we know it, begins as a choral competition where people one by one start to step out from the chorus and start to engage in dialogue with their colleagues which are singing and dancing alongside them. Uh, The word theater actually literally means like watching space so it was definitely something that you sat and watched Um, and again like I said it, it begins in song and dance and then it becomes dialogue so it's kind of the reverse of what we might think today. Okay, so is do scholars have anything in the records or the archives, Andy, in terms of um, concrete theater being performed earlier than the 5th century? And I guess said another way, is it believed that theater was being performed before the 5th century, but it's only the 5th century and later that uh, certain enough materials... Uh, survive that a scholar can piece together that you know at this point in time in the past theater was being uh, performed yeah that's actually a pretty good way to describe it obviously uh, theater is not something that was invented in Athens but uh, like I said it crystallizes in Athens a lot of stuff that the Greeks were doing crystallizes by that time we occasionally see references to playwrights from the period before this uh, like I said, there's the story about Thespis, but we don't have any hard documentation about that stuff. What we have is oral tradition. So um, the um, traditionally for us, uh, theater begins with Aeschylus. And to give you an idea of the time frame, uh, Aeschylus, um, who was famous for his Orestes trilogy, the Orestia, uh, he was a teenager when the Athenians got rid of their tyrant and founded a proper democracy. He was a teenager during that period. And he was also a young man who served in the wars against Persia, uh, against Xerxes, against Darius. And in fact, the earliest play, surviving play we have is a historical play called The Persians. It's written by a veteran of the Persian Wars. And, it is, um, and what's fascinating about it is that it offers a sympathetic view of the Persians after they know they have lost everything to Athens. And I'm going to 
uh, certainly ask some questions about uh, some of the earlier plays. When it comes to uh, the actual construction or the composition of what a, a, a play, a, a theater is. So what in, in, in this, in this uh, early period, at what point is it that theater becomes uh, theater? So you'd mentioned it's singing and dancing, but then and, and, and there's a point in which in history, the actors begin to um, communicate with each other. So is it that theater becomes theater at that? Is that the inflection point when two actors, two or more actors are actually communicating with each other? Yes, yes. Um, Aristotle is the closest witness we have to those days. And he says that um, start, first you have one actor engaging in dialogue with the chorus. Uh, Aeschylus is the one, he's also known as Aeschylus. He's the one to introduce two actors on stage at the same time, so that they're talking together without the chorus's interference. And then Sophocles comes along and adds a third actor. And it is at the point when you have three actors on stage and a chorus that is brought in from time to time. That's where Aristotle would say, that's when theater really comes into its own. That's when it reaches its fullest potential. Okay. In these early years, what's known about where it was performed in Greece? You mentioned Athens earlier, so certainly uh, please bring in different known cities or city-states as necessary in your answer, but then also on a more micro level, what was the actual um, physical environment that is known that theater would have been performed um, in these, you know, in the the, the location or the various locations in Greece in this, uh, in, in this early period of time? Yeah, it's it, this. Is, it's a great question because uh, the um, most of the surviving ancient theaters, the truly ancient theaters that we have, consist of a circular audience area and a circular dancing space known as the orchestra. Uh, the word orchestra refers specifically to a dancing space, and ironically, the size of the circle has nothing to do with tragedy and everything to do with the fact that dance competitions came first. Uh, So, for example, in Athens, uh, the circle had to be big enough to accommodate 50 grown men dancing in circles. Um, And that's why you get um, a certain early look to theater. Um, But in Athens, I get the impression that things developed a little bit differently because the first tragic competitions were held in downtown Athens in the Agora, the market square. And uh, we have indications that they would simply put up uh, wooden bleachers, temporary wooden bleachers uh, in the spring uh, for everybody to sit on and that the rest of the agora was laid out for dancing and performance. Uh, this ended uh, when uh, the grandstand collapsed one year and that's when they decided to move the theater to the opposite side of the Acropolis. If you uh, can get in your mind's eye the Acropolis, the agora is sort of at 10 or 11 o'clock And then the theater of Dionysus that we love today, that's closer to like five or six o'clock. They're on opposite sides of the Acropolis. And the main reason they moved to the other side of the Acropolis, uh, number one was because there happened to be a small temple dedicated to Dionysus there already, but also because you had a natural hillside. You could simply lay out some stones in the hillside. Nothing would collapse. Everything was safe. Um, And, um, 
what you find just about everywhere you go in the Greek world is that the theaters are built naturally into hillsides and you have this view of the countryside. If you go to Santorini, there's an ancient Greek theater in Santorini, you get a view of the sea. Um, so if you're at least in any way into nature, you realize, you know, the actors have to compete with, with nature. And sometimes that's not an even match. <laughs> it's just beautiful to sit in these places. It sounds idyllic. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. In these early years, did the people doing the performances, did they, did they consider what they were doing to be... They knew they were acting, but did they did they consider what they were doing to be a um, a, a, a a hobby? Did they consider it to be uh, a a full time position? Is anything known about how actors and those involved in theater what their relationship was to theater from a vocation perspective in these early years? It's a great question, and it's spot on again, because the earliest theater, the great tragedies and comedies that we have today were all written and performed by amateurs. They were elite amateurs. They were um, part of the upper upper, uh, upper crust, the upper the country club set in Athens. They did it as a public service. They did not do it for the money. In fact, there was no money involved at all. Um, there were there were bragging rights, of course. If you entered a tragedy or a comedy and you won, you got the bragging rights. Presumably, you had to pay for all the drinks afterwards. But um, they were. Uh, and again, the other thing to keep in mind is that um, as Athenian males, they had all seen years in service in the Athenian army or navy. They had all seen war, and so these are people who um, regarded it as a civic duty. They don't get into acting in the way that we think of acting today. This is the almost the diametrical opposite of what we think of as the Stanislavski technique, the method acting that American actors are so famous for. You put on a mask, you put on a costume, you speak the role, you sing the role as required. But as soon as you take the mask off and you step off the stage, you are an Athenian citizen. Uh, the concept of a professional actor does not come along until Alexander the Great's time. And um, ironically, uh, professional actors were regarded as you know, grunts, as very simplistic, rude mechanicals, so to speak. Because if you actually had to work to, to earn a living, um, that meant that you were not a part of the elite that had produced the plays in the first place. Was the sector or the industry in these early years then, was it fully gratis in that there was no uh, income generating as a, as a revenue stream? So, for instance, you mentioned the, um, uh, the, like the audience, the, the spectators of theater. Is it presumed or known then would they have uh, attended um, at, at no charge in these, these early years? So the industry, for the most part, when it, when it or, or for an entire part, um, is, it, is it believed that the playwrights, the actors, their, uh, you know, other people involved in the production of these plays, they're, they're doing it gratis, and then the spectators are attending uh, at no charge as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, everything was free. In fact, um, 
one of the few things that remains uh, the same as you transition from Greek, Greek culture to Roman culture during the empire is that everything was paid for. Some uh, public benefactor, usually a very, very wealthy person, was designated as the person who funded the production. You would reimburse people um, for their time. Uh, there was a kind of honor code that you would reimburse people for the time they spend learning their roles, uh, practicing the dance routines that came with the choruses, etc. But everything was free. Uh, the one, the one caveat is that festivals. Um, if you've ever been to a church festival, you know that it's a money-making opportunity, right? The merchants come out of the woodwork and they congregate around the festival area and they do business. So when you think of a theater festival in ancient Greece, remember that this is uh, this is market square time. The two or three weeks of a festival meant that you had uh, merchants all over the city cutting deals, selling tchotchkes, selling food, what have you, making a lot of money thanks to the free performances that everybody was coming to see. Okay. You mentioned Aeschylus, earlier in the conversation as a playwright um what were some of in addition to Aeschylus uh what what were another couple maybe two or three playwrights that you'd like to mention and what what plays they were known for producing in in these early years in terms of theater yeah we um we, we have three major playwrights in tragedy. Um, Aeschylus is the first, Sophocles the second, and Euripides is the third. Uh, Sophocles and Euripides were the younger generation. Uh, they were roughly colleagues uh, around the same age. Uh, but you also have uh, the one example we have of, of ancient Greek comedy is by a fellow named Aristophanes. And um, the tragedies have their, their ambiance, right? Very, you know the mighty laid low and all that stuff. Um, Aristophanes is so completely different in spirit that it's hard to believe that he's writing at the same festival. So imagine one day going to see a great tragedy like Sophocles, Oedipus, and then going in the next day to see Aristophanes' uh, really raunchy comedies. It's a bit like, I don't know, Boys Down the Hall or uh, you know, Saturday Night Live or uh, some, of the, some of the uncensored material emphasis on uncensored material that you can find on Comedy Central or any other uh, dedicated places like that. It's um, the comedies were as freewheeling as the tragedies were more, you know, uptight, so to speak. Is there a, a play that Sophocles is most known for having produced that you'd like to mention? And is there one that Euripides uh, produced that uh, that you'd like to, to mention. Absolutely, yeah. Um, Sophocles is probably most famous for his play Oedipus Rex. Now, the interesting thing is that the play was staged um, in the wake of the great plague of Athens that took the life of Pericles, one of Athens' most famous leaders. Uh, we think of the play in terms of the mythology of the Oedipal complex, but uh, Sophocles used the play to reflect on the arrogance of Pericles as a leader of Athens. And it was actually um, yeah, one of the, yeah, so he, he is writing tragedies that comment directly on current events, but he's using mythology to do it. Um, in terms of Euripides, 
Um, another example of a play that is set in a mythological time but has a very potent political message is one called Helen. You have to do some digging to find it, but it's well worth it, especially these days. Uh, for anyone who has uh, family or, or dear friends who have served in the wars overseas lately, the Helen is a particularly poignant play because it's about people realizing that the Trojan War was fought for no reason at all. Um, the play is about uh, the alternative version of the Trojan War in which Helen never goes to Troy. Instead, she spends all of her time in Egypt waiting for her husband Menelaus to come pick her up. Yeah, that alternative narrative about um, Helen in tradition uh, came up in an episode uh, that was published a few few weeks ago. Uh, Dr. Joel Christensen was on the show, uh, and we were chatting about um, the Greek mythological hero Achilles. And I think he had mentioned that uh, um, alternative tradition in in uh, in, in uh, Greece. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, the you you mentioned the term tragedy as a as a genre, and I've seen this term mentioned a lot inside of this context. Uh, the tragedians. Can can you expand on that? At what point does does a play become a tragedy? Oh, that's a great question. Well, Aristotle is is our guide, and he he does a pretty good job of summing it up. He, he says the tragedy to be a tragedy, it has to focus on the elite. It has to focus on mythological figures, royal families who suffer a tremendous catastrophe. Um, in some cases, the catastrophe comes because of, of what we might call a character flaw, a tragic flaw. Uh, in the case of uh, Sophocles' Oedipus, for example, Oedipus is a really arrogant SOB in the play, and it is his arrogance and his, his, his own undoing. Okay? Um, the, um, that's really the most important thing. The other thing that distinguishes tragedy is that it's not written in one style of poetry alone. It uses multiple different mode, you know, different uh, kinds of poetry, different meters, and it also includes bits of prose for variety's sake. Uh, you know, that's, that's before we even start talking about the choral odes, where you have a lot of singing and dancing as well. You mentioned Helen uh, earlier, uh, mm-hmm. mom- moments ago in the, in, in the conversation. Um, the Homeric epics when it when it comes to the the Trojan War, and uh, which is um, chronicled in the in the Iliad, and then there's the there's the Odyssey. Do any playwrights um, cover those stories from a from a theater perspective in in this period that we're talking about in in classical Greece? Yes, yes. And in fact, the, the, uh, when you look at the surviving tragedies we have from the big three, uh, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, what's really interesting is to see which episodes they choose from the Homeric tradition, which they turn into full-length tragedies. It's small little snippets of chapters that, that when you're reading the Iliad, it, you, know, you sneeze and you forget it, right? Um, but when, when they, because these guys grew up um, with Homer as the gold standard of poetry, they memorized everything and they knew exactly what to focus on for uh, their tragedies for the year. Um, and everything from um, Ajax's madness to uh, 
to uh, Philoctetes, who is a warrior who's been shunted off to an island because he has a case of boils or something like that. Um, uh, the, uh, the assassination of a Thracian king, Rhesus, which happens, you know, again, sneeze and you miss it. Um, Odysseus and Diomedes sneak into the Trojan camp and kill him, but it becomes a full-fledged tragedy under Euripides' uh, hands, uh, you know, which, which would take only two or three minutes in the Homeric tradition. Uh, I mean, if I might, I was going to say one of the key features of tragedy is one of the features of artistic competitions in general during this period, which is that it's theme and variations. You have a standard storyline, and, and everybody knows the story when they come to sit down and watch the play. They know the story. They just want to see what you do with it. They want to see your personal artistic stamp on that particular story. Uh, it's a bit like jazz in that respect. Everybody knows the standards in jazz. And so who cares? Everybody knows the words. Everybody knows the melody. They want to hear how you do it. And that's pretty much how Homer is used as a foundation upon which to build really sophisticated, you know, current events commentary, for example, things like that. So the question I was going to ask, and I'm still going to ask it, but what's interesting is what you expanded on there. You created a very nice segue for this question. So when playwrights are writing plays in 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 these in this earlier period about the Homeric epics, we'll use that as an as an example. Is it believed that they are inventing? new parts of the narrative they're inventing um new new tradition that that surrounds uh and so if we're talking about the homeric epics we can use the trojan war as an example so is it believed that they're inventing new parts of this of the narrative and or is it believed that they are leaning from other sources that may have survived at that point in time or may have been passed on to them through oral tradition or possibly some other form of communication like uh, like like objects and, and various artwork. Yeah, the, um, the, the consensus that from what I've seen is that playwrights worked um, in, some, in ways that are similar to Shakespeare, for example. If you're familiar with, with, with many of Shakespeare's plays, you'll know that there were books and there were songs and poems that were contemporary in Shakespeare's time, and he found a way to incorporate them into his plays. Um, in the case of Helen, for example, by Euripides, there was already a poem in circulation uh, written by a poet named Stesichorus uh, that uh, basically laid out the alternative version of the Trojan War. It's known as the Palinode, uh, sort of like a counter song. Uh, and it, um, so everybody in Athens knew that other story about Helen being in Egypt. Um, so again, you're, 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 there is an oral tradition. There is a lot of information out there. The oral tradition certainly is the foundation for what you do as a, as a poet, uh, whether you're writing tragedy or comedy. Okay. So piggybacking on the comment about the Achilles episode that occurred, um, a short while ago. Um, does Achilles' death show up at all in any plays in classical Greece that's known today? Um, that's a good one. Uh, I'd have to go through my, what I can remember of the tragedies. Uh, it's, it doesn't feature as prominently, at least among the plays that come down to us. And, and it, here's where we need to keep in mind that 
what we have is not necessarily the most popular in terms of popular reception. What we have are the tragedies that are preserved because they are good examples of good at ancient Greek. Um, uh, you know, education in Greece for 2,000 years after Athens' time consisted in reading the best, so to speak. So if you, you know, were bored to tears memorizing your, your, your Browning or your Shakespeare uh, growing up, uh, it was that kind of education. And so what we have are the plays that made for schoolroom. There probably were quite a few plays that portrayed the death of Achilles. There were probably quite a few plays that portrayed, um, uh, you know, the death of Hector, for example. Uh, it's just that those plays did not make the the, the, you know, the the professor's cut, so to speak. And what we have instead are variations on that theme. Uh, Ajax is famous for flipping out because he uh, loses uh, the competition uh, to gain Achilles uh, Achilles' armor after Achilles' death. Um, it's an episode that they don't even include in the Iliad, uh, but it, uh, that's one that gets referenced in the play Ajax. Um, and by the way, again, for those of you who have friends in the service, in the armed forces, Ajax is a very compelling play. It's been used as part of um, an outreach for, uh, for combat veterans in the United States. Um, uh, more, more than the Helen by Griffiths, Ajax is used as a play to introduce the concept of PTSD uh, among general audiences. It's a very effective way to do that. Okay. So if you think about what the corpus of plays would have been in the uh, classical period as a, as a sector, how much um, of, of the, of the, actual uh plays themselves in writing do you believe and you probably have to infer to some extent how 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 much of the corpus do you think survives today a, a, a tiny tiny fraction um to begin with um we know that there were people writing plays uh comedies tragedies what have you throughout the greek world um but um the material that we have Number one, in order to, um, given the fact that the plays were presented in competition each year before the city even agreed to stage them, um, it's like any, you know, think of the, uh, the, the literary awards we have um, each year today. Think of how many people submit for the best novel of the year, the best poem of the year, what have you, uh, and understand that we're seeing a tiny fraction of the people who won that part of the competition. Um, each year you had three tragic poets, each year you had five comic poets facing off against each other at the Dionysia in Athens. And understand that we only have a handful of plays among those who actually got to get their plays staged. Um, there's a whole pile of plays that we will never know about because they were rejected, because they were never written down. Um, or if they were written down, you know, nobody saved that they were used for, you know, to, to stuff a hole in the wall or whatever, and they disappeared. Uh, so yeah, uh, the, uh, the creativity, the potential for, for, uh, creativity in Greek playwriting was limitless. And we only have a small snapshot of a much, much vaster field of artistic endeavor. Other than the simple practice of someone discarding documents that they feel they no longer have a use for, was there any significant events that you're aware of in history that, 
may have had a lot of the uh, the the materials around uh, plays, the the written materials, uh, be be discarded or destroyed. Well, uh, there would be several of them. Uh, to begin with, of course, uh, the originals of all the Greek tra- the great tragedies and comedies were preserved in the Library of Alexandria, which was founded by uh, the Ptolemies, the successors to uh, Alexander the Great in Egypt, um, the library being founded in the uh, 300s BCE. Uh, the library uh, infamously was burned down uh, during Julius Caesar's occupation of the city while he was whining and dining with Cleopatra. Uh, but there were, by that time, there were so many copies of the plays that people might not have missed them that much. Uh, the real damage is done both by uh, the natural vulnerability of papyrus, which was the cheapest uh, writing material available at the time. Uh, you can think of uh, the, uh, the paper, uh, the wood pulp paper uh, back books that we have today and how they crumble and fall apart after a few years. Papyrus was the same way. So you have nature as, as, as an editing tool, so to speak. And then you also have uh, the, the beautiful manuscripts that come down to us on animal skin, on parchment. Many of those were destroyed in uh, series after series of, of military raids in, in all of the major cities of the Roman Empire uh, and well into uh, the Eastern Roman Empire's history, uh, 1453 being uh, perhaps uh, one of the most destructive raids uh, that would have destru- seen the destruction of a vast quantity of, 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 of tragic and theatrical literature. Okay. Um, and so far, a lot of, or all of your, what you've been referencing, Andy, so- Sophocles and Euripides, these various plays, um, in the in the early period, that was in Athens, was it? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Um, you also mentioned, uh, in, in, a, in a, it got me and probably others, you know, really imagining it, right? In Santorini, mm-hmm. you know, you got the theater the, uh, along the on, along the coast there. Uh, it sounds absolutely uh, beautiful. Um, so in the 5th century, because you, you mentioned that's when uh, theater really picks up, or at least scholars uh, ha- really have some concrete evidence of its practices in, uh, in, in, in Greece. In, in, the, in, that, in that first, uh, let's call it the 1st century or two, so the 5th, 4th century BCE, mm-hmm. is it is it... Only Athens, where where the, the the practice of theater is occurring, or are there other parts, like let's say perhaps Santorini, although it might come into your answer that that occurred at a later period. Were there other other parts in Greece that theater was known to be practiced in in those in those early, let's call it the fifth and fourth century uh, centuries? Well, the, the, the evidence that we have is kind of indirect. For example, um, Aeschylus retires to, uh, to Syracuse. He retires to Sicily um, in his later years, and presumably he continues to write plays there. Uh, Euripides uh, and another playwright whose work we don't have that much of, uh, they both are invited to become court playwrights up in Macedonia, and they are writing plays uh, for some of the uh, the predecessors to Philip uh, Philip the Great and Alexander the Great, so um, the um, what I, I'm tempted to say is that every Greek community at that time had its own tradition, 
but the, the Athenian tradition was regarded as the gold standard. You can think of the influence that Shakespeare has on theatrical practice today. You can think of the influence that Broadway has on theatrical practice today. And the way that you know, Shakespeare, Broadway, just, you know, they tend to dominate the way that we do theater uh, today and understand that Athens had the same dominant, culturally dominant role among the Greek-speaking communities throughout the Mediterranean uh, during those times. What, so some clo- closing, closing questions, Andy. What, what is your favorite Greek play in, in, these, in this early period, in the classical period? impossible for me to choose it's impossible i mentioned helen um that's one that i have a special uh fondness for the other play of course that i really have to mention again um excuse me it may be more familiar to your audience is liz estrada uh, which is uh, <coughs> uh the classic make love not war play it's it's a it's a it's a really risque comedy about the women of athens and sparta in the middle of the peloponnesian war a massive civil war where the women decide to go on a sex strike, okay, until their husbands sign a peace treaty, no nookie. And um, and trust me, the language in, in Lysistrata is as explicit as you could possibly imagine. It would not make the CBC. It would not get, C, it would get a regular airplay anywhere. In fact, when people try to translate Lysistrata accurately into English, um, the actors and actresses look at the script and go, oh my God, I can't do that. That's disgusting which was actually half of the point. Aristophanes thrived on plays that were just filthy from our perspective. But again, everybody back then had a really earthy sense of humor. So it, it's, it's, it's a beautiful play that way because of the filth, uh, <laughs> if, you can, if you can think of it that way. Yeah. So you're a scholar and you're also, you're, you're also an actor. Is that right, Andy? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. So can you can you take take a moment in in more of a closing context? Can you share um, what that juxtapos- juxtaposition is for you um, in terms of on one hand you're very passionate you're passionate about both topics clearly as a stu- you know a, 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 a scholar of history and then you're also an actor and yet naturally if someone identifies himself as an actor there has to be passion there so what can you maybe just speak about how you kind of look at those two uh fields and uh and how and how they juxtapose or uh you know even commingle with with each other as, as you go through your life well the um the passion for acting at least for me it led directly to an interest in the history of the profession, the history of the art form. And the beauty of it is the deeper I look into the history of the profession, the more variety I find. Uh, Naturally, people like to have simple answers to simple questions, but if you ask somebody about theater in ancient Greece, I've tried to lay out to you today, it was a huge, very, very diverse scene, and we only have a small vision a very, very limited understanding of what the Greeks actually accomplished. In much the same way that if you were to ask somebody about the Toronto theater scene or the New York theater scene, there are so many small theaters that are doing amazing, uh, really innovative, creative work that will pack the house once COVID is over. And um, and yet a lot of that is just not going to make it into the history books. So um, I, I 
take comfort in knowing that even if my work doesn't survive in print or on video anywhere, uh, my work as an actor, that I'm part of a much broader artistic milieu and that we're all working together each in our own way to, um, to preserve the performing arts and to share our joy in the performing arts. And the Greeks took great joy in tragedy and comedy, uh, so much joy that they didn't want to charge anybody to actually see it. That's a hint for anybody out there who wants to see theater revived anytime soon. Why don't we have a few benefactors make sure that all of our theaters are free? People can really go to see stuff if it's free. <laughs> I'd love it. You have a lot of knowledge on this topic. You're always enjoyable to speak with, Andy. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for the invitation. I really appreciate it. Take care. So again, everybody, the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. White wrote, Performing Orthodox Ritual in Byzantium. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Andy and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.